Greetings to everyone. We are now in the chapter 12 of Romans, and this is a grace-filled community chapter. That's how I would explain it. So I look forward to walking through this with you, and let's just ask the Lord to guide us as we do our study this week. Let us pray. Holy Spirit of God, please guide my words. Please guide our thoughts so that we might learn more about you and about living in the Christian community and living as Christians in the world. Bless the time that we share in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been part of our church, you know that you have listened to sermons all the way up through verse 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 this week. And uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter. Some of it will sound very familiar if you've been online with us and have listened to the sermons or, or watched them. But also, it's a great time to look at the study, the nuances behind what Paul was writing when he was writing to the people in Rome. So let us begin. It begins with that word, therefore. Having looked backwards and remembered what we had heard and read and absorbed in chapters 1 through 11, we know from those chapters that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus. We now have turned and moved forward as we look at verse at chapter 12 in Romans and we see what's next. And the rest of Romans is about how we as Christians live a life transformed by the renewed mind and our whole body. Uh, body, our personal, who we are, our whole being, as well as the body of believers, the community in Christ. So Romans 12 is committed to unpacking both the ethical and the ecclesiastical structure or the shape of new life. And we see that in, in chapter six, verse 14. In chapter one through 11, we see what happened in a broken, beat up world where Christ was really needed. And now we are experiencing a new life in Christ Jesus. We are moving in chapters 12 through 16 to kind of an imperative. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we live. And it's very instructional. Um, it can uh, put us on edge, I think, a little bit because we're like, wow, you really want us to do that? Yes. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what our life looks like. But we don't do it in a vacuum. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, guiding us, indwelling us, transforming us, renewing us constantly so that we live um, people who are transformed and giving ourselves to God. Now, if you look specifically in the first eight verses, it is the new life in Christ and with one another. And we're just going to walk through this. So in verses one and two, it really talks about being and becoming. And I've mentioned that therefore, by God's mercy. This is something that God is doing in us. God is a merciful God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He is merciful. He changes us. And it's pivotal for who we are. We are for followers of Jesus, forgiven people. And the two verses, one and two, are the center of the chapter. They're kind of like a magnet. And I have a watch that's a Fitbit. And at night, um, or when I'm charging or whatever, I charge it up and I put it on this magnet battery. And the funny thing is, is if my um, paper clips or bobby pins or something else gets in my way, boom, it sticks right to it. That's the magnet 
That's the very center of verses one and two. James Edwards has a great illustration of that. This is a, it's kind of it's the pole at the very center. Therefore, by the mercies of God, I'm calling you to live this new life. So be a living sacrifice that's to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively and willingly to obey God in anything that God wants to do in any area of our life. That is a lot, a lot to ask of us. And yet God asks it because of the empowering Holy Spirit. We are able to do it. And so we are willing and able. Uh, the previous verses dealt with what we might call the inner life of the church, but our outward behavior in the world is important also. And those are the two things we're looking at. So the fundamental response of the gracious lordship of God displayed in the Son is to allow ourselves to be shaped totally by that lordship, rather than by the lordship of sin that operates in this world, uh, or by individuals, or by our own self. So as we look at this, we look at we are a, an individual in a community of individuals called together to make a body, a body of Christ. And that moves us into verses three through eight, grace and Christian community. And number uh, three, verse three, it says, um, look at yourself with sober, with a sober self-assessment and leaning on faith in Christ's work that acknowledges we are redeemed sinners. So don't think too highly of yourself that that comes about a couple of times in this chapter. Think soberly, somberly about who you are, a self-assessment that allows us to say, I am broken, totally a sinner, but I'm redeemed. Therefore, I have new life, new life in Christ. And then verse four and five with a new self-understanding uh, it, it doesn't just, well, this is who I am now. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in community and how we live that life out. So uh, we do not come to know our true selves through just individualism. Oh, this is who I am. We find out and discover more about ourselves in a community. And that community is within the body of Christ. We are not like um, a body. We are the body. Let me say that again. We're not like a body, we are the body, the body of believers, the body of Christ. The human body is not a unity um, uh, despite our diversity. It's a unity because of our diversity. We really need that diversity, folks. And the gifts that are talked about in these verses have everything to do with how different we are and how wonderfully made the church becomes because we are put together into community with one another. Verses six through eight speak specifically uh, about the whole body and its parts, the gifts that we have, and the word charisma, which is, is the word in Greek for gifts, comes from the word grace, charis. And so you see that grace-filled gifts that we have. These are given by God through the Holy Spirit. We don't pick them but we do choose whether we want to use them. And God will continue to call us, continue to come after us so that we are using the gifts that God has given to us. Paul wants to emphasize our unity as uh, a precursor for gifts and 
virtue. So when he talks about these gifts, it, it has to do with the unity that we have. That's what makes these gifts so wonderful. And then, um, as I've said, uh, our spiritual gifts refer to the way God commissions those who trust in him to do the work of the kingdom around us. Sometimes I think about our spiritual gifts only to be used in the church, and that's just not true. Our spiritual gifts are good in the church and out of the church. And in fact, they are so necessary to be used in the world so that people can come to know Christ Jesus through our sharing of our spiritual gifts out in the world. Okay, so on verse six and seven, there's just a note, there are specific gifts, uh, whereas in verse eight, you have the virtues. So the virtues in verse eight talk about uh, giving generously, leading eagerly, and ministering cheerfully. These are virtues, and all Christians can have those, and all Christians should have those. We should all be generous. In our leading, we should be enthusiastic about, about caring for the people that God has put in our place to lead, and eagerly um, having uh, ministering in a way that is without resentment, that is cheerful in the way in which we care for one another. So we may not all have that gift of prophecy, but we will all have that gift of giving, all have that gift of caring for one another. Let's go on to verses 9 through 21. That's the marks of a Christian in community. Kind of begins in the church and how we treat one another, and then it's going to spread out to how we live and behave and really, in a real sense, live out our lives, even in the world, which may not understand who we are and, in fact, may oppose who we are. So let's look at this. The section is um, centered in our life, expressed as followers of Jesus, as those who love authenticity. Authentic, I'm not going to say this right. Authentically, thank you. So that we have an authenticity to who we are in the way that we love people. It is a love from God. It is that what we call agape love. That is a God-given love. And it begins with that word, love what is good and hate what is evil. In the same way, the chapter concludes in verse 21 with a call to overcome evil with good. So in verses 9 through 13, it begins again, hate what is evil. And Christians live... Uh, Live living never begins with a set of rules. If we did that, then we'd just be into works theology. We just think, boy, if I just work hard enough, I'll get this done. It begins with love. Everything that we do is an act that's at spiritual worship. That's that living sacrifice. That's out of love, not out of obligation, not out of ought. We ought to do this, but because we want to. We want that desire to live um, authentically in what we do and to love with authenticity. So the word genuine, genuine which is used here, means um, unhypocritical. Like we're not pretending to love something that we don't. It poses a problem for many people that we know <laughs> today, and it poses a problem for many Christians because it really doesn't, if you really don't like someone, then, you know, how can I love them? I used to say about people, especially relatives, just so you know, um, I love them, I just don't like them. Well, that's not, that, 
that's not good. That's not what we're talking about here. We really want to have the love of God for all people so that not only do we love them, but we like them. We, we appreciate and embrace them even, even when they do things that are harmful to us because the love we have for them does not come from self. It comes from God. We need to capture that and share that with one another. We will do well to remind ourselves that if we waited until we were um, quite sure of our motives and the reason why we would completely and purely and rightly love someone, it probably wouldn't happen. And uh, that's a kind of a paraphrase from um, N.T. Wright about, you know, if you're going to wait till you can love perfectly, it probably won't happen. We learn, we're being transformed. So as we learn to love and act out that genuine love for one another, it becomes real in our lives and genuine in our lives. Well, if we move on, we look at verses 10 through 13. We're just talking about loving in the communities, community of believers. And Paul presents 10 examples of love in kind of a parallel form. James Edwards, in his commentary on Romans, does a fine job of creating a present-day application of these 10 examples. There, I gave them to you, but I'm just going to unpack them a little bit more. So the first one is brotherly love. That's that's philos, comes from philo, filio, and it's being and being devoted to one another. So kind of a, a brotherly love, devoted as a parent would be to their family. So that's the kind of love we should have. And then in honor, outdoing one another. We go back to the humility of putting others first, not yourself, but others, to honor outdoing one another, not as a way to build yourself up, but a way to build others up um, in zeal, never flagging. So consistency and enthusiasm. You know, when you're excited about something, you don't lose that enthusiasm. Be excited for who God is in your life and share that. Have that zeal for one another. And then in spirit, being a glow that is the spirit shining through us. If you've ever known someone who's so full of the Holy Spirit, kind of just want to stand next to them. You just see, they just kind of exude that joy of the Lord, that that spirit. Let that spirit just flow out of you. Be a glow in the spirit. And then to the Lord serving. So what we do is for the Lord's sake. Again, not so that we look good, but that God is served. And so we serve our Lord in that way. We do what we do to honor God, to glorify God. And then in hope, rejoicing. Now, joy we feel normally because of the experience. We have a a joyous wedding or we feel joy in our heart for our family whom we know and we love. But joyous hope means that we know that the hope we have in Jesus Christ is not just for the future. It's for right now. That the joy we have is the hope and the promises of Christ and his resurrection for us. And then in tribulation, being patient Uh, It's a bigger picture mentality. Life is greater than the moment in which we live. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that we may not see what's going on now, but we later will see that in the unfolding. And that may even be when we're in the presence of the kingdom triumphant, but we are patient in tribulation. And then in prayer, being constant. Keep on keeping on in praying, staying connected to God. The best way to know the will of God is to be in relationship with 
God, in conversation with God. Prayer is one of the best ways to do that. You could pray anytime and any place with your eyes wide open. So just be in prayer. And then to the needs of the saints, sharing graciously. I call this costly giving. We love to give as long as it doesn't affect our lifestyle. As long as what we're required to do in sharing isn't too costly. And yet that's what it's saying here is to the needs of the saints, share generously. Don't think about that cost. Unless you want to think about the cost that Christ has given to us and what he's done for us. And then lastly, in hospitality, being diligent. So more than just inviting our best friends over, invite the unknown people. Invite what I call the little people, <laughs> the mini me and Mickey me's of, of our of our congregation, of our community, of our world that don't get invited. Be hospitable to those, to those that wouldn't expect it or would even think that they would be rejected. No, embrace them. Show that hospitality to them. All right, let's turn to the last part, verses 14 through 21. Giving grace to the world. Verse 14 and 16, we are called to bless our enemies, to bless them. That is a, a, a big gulp of water, and um, we may want to choke on that, blessing our enemies. But God's grace is given to the whole world before the world responds. It is broken. It is full of disparities, double standards, those who are thriving and those who are dying. There is uh, no different than in verse 9 when we are called to hate evil or hate sin, but not the sinner. Does that make sense? We've heard that a lot, but think about that. Hate what evil is being done, but don't hate that sinner because that person needs to be redeemed too. Bless them, care for them. Figure out how you can be a change agent for them by the way in which you treat them. Matthew 5.44 reminds us to love our enemies. Okay, what is difficult is not retaliating when people hurt us. Um, we seem justified. If someone hurts us, we seem justified. Years and years ago, uh, Corinne is a little, like a toddler, was pushed over by a bigger kid. And Jordan, who's six years older than Corinna, just went over and decked this kid. That was his like first response. I kind of wanted to cheer him, but I thought, well, that's that's not really a good thing. And so we went over and the big kid was crying because they'd been pushed by somebody his age, even though he had pushed somebody younger. But it was like, that's that's the, that's the that's not a, something that we want to do, but we have a desire. We kind of think about, boy, this is what I'd, I'd like to do. And it, it's not helpful. Only through faith, where God is at work and our and our ability to look at people differently. That is the best way we can be transformed and have the living spirit in us, not by retaliation. Um, again, I confess, I have a tendency, I'm sure none of you do this to want to get back at somebody who's hurt us, but that's not the way of Jesus. That's, Paul is very specific here. Jesus is very specific here. He would never have gone to the Christ to the cross if it was all about just getting even or paying back what's due. Verse 15 compels us as Christians to be sensitive to our enemies, not to ourselves, but to those who grieve or mourn, as well as those who rejoice. 
This is possible by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We become the empaths for other people. Sometimes it's really hard to be around people who are grieving or mourning. Uh, more than once I've heard people say, well, aren't they over that yet? Well, no, they're not. How do we come alongside and, and sit Shabbat with them, care for them, love them? That's what, but, but far more than anyone has ever experienced before. That's what it's called. Um, verse 16, living in harmony. Good word for that is kinship. Is a reminder that we indeed are capable and compelled to identify and engage with those without options, the very lowly. That's who the poor are. That's who the very lowly are. They are people without options. And that's who we're called to come alongside, to have a kinship, to identify with them, to be with them. It is also a repeat of what we looked at in verse three. Don't think so highly of yourself that you're too good for these people. You're not. <laughs> you can come alongside them. In fact, we're compelled to do so. And then verses 17 to 21, again, that retaliation, not even within the community because it can happen in the community where someone, a community of Christ hurts us. By the way, Jordan uh, and Corinna were at church when Corinna was pushed over by that younger kid. It was right after Sunday school. And so it can happen in community, but this is in retaliation against the larger the larger perspective of the world and don't be like the world. Don't be like them to try and retaliate. Uh, response with honor against evil, not with retribution. Um, our goal is to uh, think in terms not of the world, but in terms of a life transformed by Christ. That's our goal, to live a life transformed by Christ. We must consider how we respond. So don't do it like quickly. Oh, you hurt them. I'm going to hurt you. How can we respond in a way that's gracious and that's loving, that honors God and honors the other person, not because they deserve it, but because we know that when we were sinners, Christ died for us too. So early Christians, no matter their economic status, their ethnicity, uh, their, their, st their state in life or where they were, they began to experience persecution simply because they were followers of Jesus. And um, they might well have retaliated, but we see not only the warnings like Matthew 5, 38 through 42, where it said, yes, you're going to be persecuted, but you're beyond that. You're be patient. You know that we will get through this, that God is with you, and we're to respond differently than the rest of the world. N.T. Wright put it this way, we're refusing to allow our own future lives to be determined by the evil that someone else has done. It's bad enough that we've done whatever it was. Why should they then have the right to keep us in a bitter and twisted state? Do you understand if we don't forgive others, we're going to live bitter lives and we're going to get stuck. That's not what God wants for us. Don't go there. Be people who are so changed in God that we're able to love and give to others. Okay, verse 18, seek peace as much as it's possible. So don't don't seek peace just to, oh, oh, oh I, don't, I don't want to disagree with, with the evil that's going on. Uh, so just to keep peace, that's not what it's saying. It's like, 
but know that peace is our goal. So do it in a measured way. Whenever possible, make peace your goal. And then verse 19, do not take revenge against those who persecute you. Once again, I want to get even. That's not the way of Christ. Uh, let God administer God's justice, God's vengeance, not ours. We're really bad at it. That's why Jesus said, don't judge because then you're going to be judged. We're just lousy at judging. God will be the one who will do that. And vengeance is unlikely um, when it serves self. It just isn't what God wants. And it ends up being our, our getting even rather than allowing God to do a work in another person. Minister to your enemies by doing good to and for them. Your good work will show them the power of God working in you. When people treat you badly and you're still nice to them, it, it does wear on them. At first they resent it, but then it begins to really transform how they see you and what you do. Think differently than the world. They see what they're doing and it begins to change them. So in verse, is that we look at verse 19 through 21 really here, and we see that last part where it said um, in verse 20, be so good to them, it's like heaping burning coals upon their head. Well, that seems pretty much like retribution to me when you first look at that, but that's not what that's saying. In Proverbs, we read that when a person was repenting, when they'd seen that what they'd done was really wrong, they would symbolically put coals, hot coals, in a bowl on their head and walk around showing that they were contrite heart, that they were sorry, that they were uh, seeking and making forgiveness uh, for, for what they had done. And um, when we treat people well, it does have an effect on them. And that's what Paul is talking about here, that the power of God working in you will bring them to see their wickedness and they will turn to God. Um, we should actually go out of our way to be positive in uncalled acts of kindness to those who have wronged us. That in turn may lead them truly to follow Jesus. Why are you so nice? Because Jesus is nice to me. Why do you care about me? Because God cares about me and cares about you. God loves you and I love you. Even with all your warts and bruises and everything about you, even your meanness, I still love you. I don't like your being hurtful to me, but I love you and I and I want to show you that there's a better way. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be transformed. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice as a spiritual worship for God. God bless you. Amen.